Hello, my name. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of guests on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. Oh, it's so lovely to be back. Um, I hope everybody uh, enjoyed the kind of brief hiatus. When I say enjoyed, I mean, you know, listen to the old episodes, enjoyed the old episodes. Um, I certainly did because I am insufferable. And also, you know, I, I don't generally listen back on the episodes after the editing stage. So it was nice to kind of take a, a trip back down memory lane um, and realize quite how awful some of the audio quality was on, on, the, uh, on the early episodes. Um, but yeah, it's it so nice, and it, it's such a thrill to be back. Um, apologies for the kind of hiatus during October. I was extremely busy. Um, I, I moved house, which is a, a whole thing in and of itself. I was on two different um, screenwriting residencies. Um, that I will hopefully have more news on that in the future. Um, and I worked on a magic show. I spent a week developing a, a magic show that I'd written, and I was performing called Lies for Money, um, which possibly one day some of you may be able to see um i will also have more news on that soon it was so exciting it was so uh, so difficult because i'm not you know uh, i'm not a natural performer but because it's a magic show i kind of have to do i don't have to i could write for someone else i suppose but i'm also you know i like i like being the person on stage um and it was a real like a, a development is the best word for it it was uh, it was such a good week I, I felt thoroughly developed and exhausted at the end of it but uh we managed to put together a really good show, I think. So hopefully more on that also in the future. Um, but you're not here for that. You're here for the video game chat. And uh, my first guest back is an absolute treat. Uh, it's Mike Cook. Uh, Mike is an AI researcher. Uh, he's the founder of Proc Jam, which actually just started, I think, on Friday. So go to Mike's Twitter page or go to the hashtag Proc Jam and see all the amazing procedurally generated games that people are creating. Um, and perhaps most excitingly, Mike has developed uh, an AI called Angelina, which is an AI that makes video games. Uh, we talked about this briefly when I spoke to Christian Donlan, uh, episode 102. Um, he, he mentioned Mike briefly, and so I had to follow up on that, and I was so glad that I did. It's a really brilliant chat, really genuinely heartwarming uh, for a lot of it, like some lovely sort of childhood stories, uh, and, and genuinely mind-blowing. Like I, I feel like my whole understanding of, of artificial intelligence is kind of flipped after this chat with with mike um it's, it's much less terrifying well <laughs> listen to the episode it's, it's, it's a real treat um mike was brilliant so yeah a real i'm um, hopefully back back with a bang um didn't get many itunes reviews <laughs> when i was away i got one or two i got some begrudged like okay if you keep going on about it uh, and therefore, you know, because somebody has done that, therefore I am going to keep going on about it. So please do rate and review the show on iTunes. It's it's such a big deal. Or on whatever platform you listen to it on. Uh, it's a great way of introducing new people to the show and uh, helping new people discover it. And, you know, share it around on Twitter, tell people in real life, all that good stuff. I was really actually pleased um, during the kind of the rebroadcasts of old episodes in October um, that that kind of subscriber numbers and listeners kind of pretty much stayed stayed even, which is which is nice. Which shows that people you know 
who have come to the show later enjoying listening to the back catalogue or or people just have it unsubscribe and then delete it as soon as it's downloaded either way the numbers being higher makes me feel good i'm a person who loves video games that's that's how i define things um and also if you'd like to get in touch if anyone wants to get in touch with the show you can you can email it's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpoint show on twitter or it's checkpoints podcast on facebook it's very important to have consistent branding um always keen to hear people's uh, ideas for guests as well if, you, if there's someone that i may not be aware of that you think might be interesting you know do do seek them out um you know i'm i'm so delighted with the, the people i get to talk to i, I, I like I, I work very hard on getting the most interesting people i can think of to talk to about their video games histories and uh, and it, so yeah any i'm basically saying don't send me any shit suggestions <laughs> only top tier guest suggestions allowed um oh man i'm babbling there's no one here i haven't done this for so long uh, it's just so exciting to be to be back um okay I, I think that's i think that's pretty much it though so uh thanks as always for downloading i hope you enjoyed the episode um please subscribe rate and review all that good stuff i'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest but until then let's get on with the show formal introduction for the sake of ceremony so so is it mike or michael do you prefer mike or michael i don't mind mike's fine you know okay uh, i'll stick with mike then um so so mike welcome to the show thanks so much for for coming on um if you don't mind would you introduce yourself yeah sure um i'm mike cook i am uh, officially in my day job an ai researcher i work in games and computational creativity um but in my spare time i do things like uh, design games myself and um i also organize something called the procedural generation jam so i'm kind of all over games technology um in various ways and as a sort of you say that your day job is an ai researcher like where yeah. Where does that take place? Is that like a kind of university research role or is that working for a company or? Yeah, no, it's um, it's university based. I've actually moved around um, a bunch over the last five years, but I currently work for the University of Falmouth in Cornwall. Um, but I'm coming to you live today from Germany, uh, oh, where nice. I've moved recently. So I'm actually working remotely. Um, I'm a visiting researcher uh, at a, another institute here. Um, but yeah, I'm part of the University of Falmouth's um, MetaMakers Institute, which is this cool research group interested in um, building AI that can help people be creative or be creative on their own. Um, and it's a really, it's a really, I don't know, it's a really exciting area of research to be in right now. It's very um, empty and it's very new and there's all these fresh ideas coming. It's very different from most of the AI that you hear about these days. Yeah. So is this the AI that's finally going to come and replace all writers and artists and musicians and stuff? Uh, either that or it's you know the, relief, the biggest to be thing honest, about it. I could relax. So be like, fine, <laughs> robots can do it. Just kick back as long as they yeah. give you a byline. Uh, that it's <laughs> fine. Um, you know, I think I think the thing it'll most do, and the thing I, I'm most excited about with it is um, helping other people be creative is a really fun aspect of it. So more like a, an AI as a mentor or a tutor, or um, you know, you you work as an apprentice to an AI maybe oh, uh, when you're starting. Um, and also, it it's funny, you know, the more a lot of my research was to do with building a piece of software called Angelina, which designs games on its own, sort of as as best as it can. And the thing is that the more you go into this, actually, you find out all of the reasons why people like humans to make things. Uh, and it's kind of reassuring, actually. The more the more you go down the route of automation, the more you find all of these things that are irreplaceable about 
human creativity. And it's really, it's kind of nice at the same time as uh, an exciting research challenge, you know? Oh, it's so exciting. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I have so many questions to ask just on, on that, that last sentence alone. Um, <laughs> also, the, the idea of like an AI kind of mentor, creative mentor, that's like, that's the pitch for like the best forgotten 80s movie kind of thing. <laughs> like you can imagine <laughs> that this relates to like the Karate Kid, but with an AI, like, oh man, it'd be so good. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, or um, yeah, it's hard to have a, a, an AI that does anything except play by the rules. Like it's, uh, so in the, in terms of the buddy cop dynamic, uh, it would definitely be the, the, the straight laced one. But the Karate Kid, uh, Karate Kid as an AI, as an AI parable would be pretty cool actually. Oh man, it'd be amazing. I really like it because it's um, it's not something you actually see very often in technology, like when it's when it's portrayed in movies or even games. Um, but the interesting thing about working in games AI is actually people that play games have interacted with AI for years, much more than most people. Um, yeah. So it's their relationship with AI is totally different to the general public's. Um, it's it's very interesting to see the difference. Actually, we're we're much more used to the idea of like. AI being a thing that you either work with or against, and you know, it's a very everyday thing to, to people who play games. Yes, it's, it's one of those things where it's kind of like, um, you often see sort of research papers about how the kids who play a lot of games tend to be slightly more academic or better problem solvers and stuff. And like, of course they do, because they've been doing that for years kind of thing. So it's kind of built in that they would deal with AI in the same way It's that little technical one step ahead, I suppose, people who wouldn't. Yeah, there's also this cultural aspect as well, though, of like, uh, they're just very accepting of the idea that AI might be their mentor or be, you know, the, the idea of the AI being better than them at something or teaching them about something is is totally fine. Everyone's really cool with it, much, much more laid back than so some of my colleagues work with um, the art community or the music community, and their reactions are completely different. Um, but games people are always super interested in, you know, the future of AI. It's uh, I don't know, just it's interesting to see the, the comparisons between different groups. Oh man! So, like, I'm going to ask you loads of really stupid questions. I'm going to, I'm going to be the voice of the audience. Not that the audience is stupid, but if you don't know uh, much about it, so I guess because of the way you've kind of painted this as like you're, you're developing AIs to serve as kind of uh, mentors to help people be more creative, I, I can't shake the idea in my head that, um, like, imagining a personality basically, like, is that. Is that a fact that when you're designing something in terms of like, is this going to like, would there be different AIs or are you looking for like, do you understand what I mean? Like, are you creating yeah, no. a personality or just like an algorithm? It's a really, it, it's a really difficult question because um, at, at some of the conferences I go to, people often bring it up or they'll present a system that has some personal aspect to it. And it's really difficult because sometimes... You know, with so many things, especially in AI, you, you have this goal on the horizon, which is very noble and lofty, but all of the steps along the way feel really crass and crude and stupid. So you're like, oh, yeah, I want to I give this AI a personality. And then the first thing that you do is something that sounds really stupid. Like uh, my sister Angelina used to read um, tweets about famous people to try and figure out what they felt, what, like what the general public thought about them. Okay. And when you talk about these things, like it sounds like such a stupid and basic uh, idea, but you, you just can't help it. You have to like fumble around in the dark looking for directions to go in. Um, but building a personality is important. Um, I think, well, there's two different, there's two different problems because some people, especially when they're working with AI as a tool, um, they really don't want to be told what to do. They want to be in, in control. So imagine like if you're working with Photoshop, you want to be in control of Photoshop. Um, 
And so you have to be very careful with the AI asserting itself too much or being too unpredictable. Okay. But then there are other scenarios where actually a bit of um, it's it's less like it's less like a teacher student mentality and more like a, like jazz um, improvisation with the computer, and where you're both kind of jamming on this idea. And it's okay if the AI takes its own twist on things or it runs ahead of you a little bit. Actually, people are okay with that. Um, and it depends. It, I guess it depends on the task that you're doing, but. Um, if their personality is really advantageous, but it's not something that, that, that has, that we know a lot about yet. We're not really sure where we want to go with it because like you say, if you have two different copies of the same AI, should they always be the same or should they be different? Like, should my tutor be different from yours? You sh I still want to learn really well, but, yeah. but probably it needs to be different because you and I learn in different ways or we play games in different ways, you know? And how do you, like, how do you, um, test this like do you have like volunteers that come in that you kind of you know you'll spend a couple of months working on something then bring people in to deal with it or is it all just internal i think um every researcher has their own way that they like to do it uh so some some researchers will have like you say they'll bring groups of people in and they'll do these studies and um they're always really it's, it's much more reliable and it's much more controllable because you know what these people are looking at and you can guide them towards certain things um i was always a big fan with angelina of putting stuff out onto the internet so doing larger scale tests okay. which they had there's loads of problems with that because you can't tell for sure like maybe someone had a bad day when they woke up and did this test um but you also get a much wider spectrum like it's a really wide pull of people so uh angelina one of the phases for Angelina was we released this Android app where Angelina had designed some of the game mechanics and levels. And um, I think I got, I don't know, it was tens of thousands of downloads of that game. And that was really exciting. And we got loads of feedback from that. Um, and of course, it's really hard. Like some people were probably playing that, you know, sitting on the sofa in front of a loud TV. And you can't really, you know, there's so many factors that you don't know about. Yeah. But it's really cool to to think that you, you're getting information from all of these different people and you're trying to learn what they like and what they don't like and how they respond to these things. Um, sometimes it's I, the, the stuff that, that most interests me is like the cultural stuff. So sometimes it's not even, you don't even have to necessarily run an experiment. It's more like what, what, how will people respond if you make the system do this thing? So I got Angelina to enter a game jam and there wasn't like, um, we didn't like do a study or a survey, but we just observed people's reactions. Like what did journalists re react to this? Like how did they describe Angelina when they wrote about it in articles? And how did the other entrants to the game jam feel about it? Like how did they, what kinds of words did they use when they commented on Angelina's entry? And it was really interesting because in, in that way, doing AI research in this way is, is sort of like, um, it's almost like a trial run for the future. Uh, so Angelina isn't really an autonomous game designer yet. It's getting there, but you know, it's baby steps. But this is sort of like, we're sort of posing the question of, well, what if it was? Like, how would you feel? Would you, would you be okay with it entering alongside you? Would you be resentful? Would you be okay if it charged money for its games? Would you be okay if I took that money? There's all these cool questions that are social and oh, cultural so get to ask. Um, and yeah, and, and don't really, we don't really know the answers to any of them, but it's a lot of fun to sort of poke at them. So how um, did it go um, with the, the game jam? So we did... Uh, this was, was it a um, secret or was it like you were well, kind of doing it as a, not a stunt necessarily, but just the, we'll put it in stealthily and see how people react afterwards? So the main entry that Angelina put in, we made totally public. And that's actually kind of, um, 
there's this long-standing debate about whether you should tell people in advance. Um, but we, we decided that we would tell everyone. So we put it in very public and we explained and we said, please try and review this game as an unbiased reviewer. Like, don't, you know. Um, and what and was then, the, the game jam? Sorry, just to contextualize. And this was uh, Ludum Der... I forget which one it was. Okay. Um, so that's, that's but, a uh, one of the big, big ones. One, though, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we took advantage of the fact that it was very big. And what we did was we secretly entered um, another game made by Angelina under a pseudonym. And we pretended, we didn't pretend too strongly. We, we put very few details in the description because we didn't want to mislead people too much. We just yeah. didn't want to tell them. And we compared the differences. And it was really fascinating um, because people really were really kind to Angelina when they knew it was an AI. They were really excited about it. They voted it very high in innovation because um, I think I think it was because they felt like Angelina was innovative because the game was actually very bad. Um, and they were just very supportive. Whereas when they thought a human had made this game, they were very critical. And I thought I just, I found that so fascinating because all of these developers were excited about the potential and they were interested in the project. And so they were kind of a little bit more generous when they reviewed Angelina's game. And in other areas like uh, art or music, there's evidence that the opposite happens actually. When they find out that it's by an AI, they like it less. But in games, it seemed to be that they liked it more. And I really loved that conclusion. It was so, it was such an exciting discovery. Uh, That's amazing. Um, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm assuming this is um, just all online. Like there is no kind of, there is no physical presence of Angelina. There's not like a box with Angelina written on it. <laughs> It's uh, no, I, I get that question a lot actually. Um, it's just it, when you were talking about the game jam, I was imagining just like everyone kind of sneering over at this computer <laughs> in the corner, just th throwing out games like every minute. <laughs> no, uh, that so that that was all done like in my living room. Um, and Angelina mostly lives on my laptop, so I would I had it took over the whole laptop for most of that weekend. Um, I had to borrow my wife's laptop to enter because I entered the game jam myself as well, and um. So, yeah, I it took over the laptop and that was it. And then I uploaded all the files. So no one actually got to see it, um, which helped when you wanted to hide your entry, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but I am I'm changing that soon. I've got some plans for the new version of Angelina where it'll be more open and people will actually be able to kind of interact with it a bit more and and see its process a bit more, which is quite useful. You know, with a lot of AI stuff, there's lots of AI headlines about an AI did this or an AI did that. Um, but you often only see the output. You don't see the process and you yeah. can't interact with it or understand it. And that's that's one of the things I'm super interested in. Because we follow, when you think about game developers that you love, you actually follow them all the time. You know, you, you see making of videos and you see um, interviews with them and post-mortems and screenshots and GIFs. And um, I, I want people to engage in with Angelina in that way as well. That's super interesting. And it's, but like, I guess what I'm wondering then is, is there a process? Like, I, I feel like it would just all be very quickly like you would just it would just kind of i don't know why i'm assuming this uh, i don't know enough about <laughs> it clearly that it would just suddenly like take a second and then spit out a finished so to speak sort of finished game is there is there more kind of trial and error that you can almost watch happening yeah it's um it's very funny there's a few factors at play and one of those factors is that i'm not i'm not the best programmer in the world right and and that means that the software i build isn't super efficient so it, it runs slower than probably if another researcher had made it but um, actually, it takes a surprising amount of time to make a game, um, even for an AI. And that's partly because over time, I've tried to, I've tried to make Angelina 
more general. So it knows less about the world and it knows less about games when it starts. And that means that it has to sort of learn as it goes along. Um, and so I, I don't know, you learn more about game development when you build a system like this. So you might think that designing rules, it's kind of easy to know when a rule set is going to be good or not. Like, you know, people, people come up with ideas for games all the time. I've got this great idea for a game. It's like this, but you do this. Yeah. But actually, if you write down like the rules for chess, but you don't see a chessboard, like you don't know what the layout of the chessboard is, you just write down the rules of chess. It's really hard to work out whether chess is a good game or not. It doesn't actually, there's no indication. It, just looking at the rules tells you almost nothing about the game. And then even if you have the level design in front of you, you know, with the pawns laid out and everything, you still don't know. You'd have to play the game to figure out whether that's good. Yeah. And so it's actually this enormous task for this AI. And like you say, there's a lot of trial and error. And in sometimes it's frustrating because you can see it doing something stupid. Um, but I think that's actually I want people <laughs> to know that it's stupid. You know, I, I want I, I really want to demystify some aspects of AI because uh, people think it's magic. But actually, some parts of it are really wonderful. Um, and you can only appreciate that by seeing the bits that are really stupid, I think. Um, I'm, I'm assuming these wonderful things, um, would that be like it does surprising things? It does things that you wouldn't have expected or you wouldn't expect necessarily anyone to do. Like, have you got a, an example of something like that? Yeah, the, the, the classic example I give for this is um, the Android game we released was based on some work I did uh, getting Angelina to generate its own game mechanics. And it would do this by... Um, it would start off with a, a level that was unsolvable. So imagine like a Super Mario level with a big wall in the middle of the level. So you couldn't get past the wall. It was like twice as high as Mario could jump. Okay. And then you would let Angelina modify the game a little bit, like write an extra line of code. So when you press the X button, it does something else. And, and I let Angelina decide what that something else is. And then it would make a change and then test the game and make a change and test the game. And it would do this until it found a way to get over the wall. And once it had done that, it knew that whatever code it had invented had allowed it to do something new. And this was cool. Like initially it made up cool mechanics like uh, inverting gravity, kind of like in VVVVVV. Uh, oh, amazing. Um, or uh, making the player bouncy. That was kind of cool. Like it would bounce up and down until it bounced high enough to go over the wall. But then one time it generated this mechanic, which was very confusing to me. It was uh, teleportation, but it would only teleport you like half an inch to the right of where you were standing. And I didn't understand, I couldn't figure out how it had managed to get over the wall using this because it, you could just teleport inside the wall and then you could teleport back. That was the only thing you could do. And so I, I spent like three days going through my code because I was sure there was a bug. Um, and there kind of was, but, but it was actually more like a speedrunner glitch that Angelina had discovered where if you teleport inside a wall, you can still jump because my game engine code thinks that you're standing on the ground um, because it only looks underneath you to see if you're standing on the ground. So Angelina teleported inside the wall and then jumped up the wall. So it's sort of like this weird glitchy wall climbing invention and then <laughs> jumps over the top. And that was just incredible because it, it was something which it, it wasn't just that it had solved the problem, but it had solved the problem in a way that I didn't just, I didn't think was possible. I just assumed I'd made a mistake and I spent days trying to track it down. Um, and those are the moments where I get really excited um, because even though the games that is made so far, they're not anything special really, but the system as a whole and just the idea, like there are loads of other researchers working in this area, just the whole idea has so much potential for the future. I think it's really exciting. I'm glad it's exciting. I, I can't help but feel a, a little bit afraid, but I'm sure we'll come back to this later. Um, but for now <laughs> though, let's, let, let's, uh, 
Let's go back in time, Mike, and uh, and if you can remember, uh, what was your very first experience of a video game? So, the 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 vaguest memories I have are um, at the time. At the time, I, I thought that this was like very contemporary hardware, but I guess it wasn't thinking back. But my dad had a ZX Spectrum um, when I was little. And I can remember sitting on the sofa aged like two or three and watching him hook this thing up to the TV. And I remember the horrible screeching noise the tapes would make when the games would load um, and these bright technicolor multicolored bars across the screen that would scrub up and down um, and these were like it was loading games off an audio cassette tape which yeah. is a concept so alien to a lot of people of a certain age now um it i mean even to me thinking back it's kind of alien but i still have some of the zx spectrum tapes um in my cupboard um and i remember playing kind of weird games with bright colored pixel blocky graphics moving i think there was the game where you played like a you controlled some worm going through a garden but the memories are so dim, but the the stronger memories I have um, are when we got the Amiga, um, and that was I was maybe aged five then, um, so just a little bit after the Spectrum. And the Amiga was the first console that I really sat down to play, and remember playing on my own as well as playing with my family. And are you we like had an only child? Have you got lots of brothers and sisters? Or I've got one brother, but he's nine years younger than me. Okay, so there was quite a gap, um, and we we played a lot together, but. The thing that distinguished sort of his childhood, I think, from mine was that when we had the Amiga, my mum and my dad and me would all play games together. Um, and that was kind of the age of like LucasArts Adventures and Broken Sword and things like that. Um, That's lovely. I, guess, I don't think really do we have a full family sitting down to play video games together. That's, that's a lovely it, image. That's the thing, like, and then, and I guess, and this is a common thread that I've seen through many people was the advent of 3D games was kind of when some people, it, it sort of pushed some people out of games and my mum was one of them. Um, um, but I remember like we, we were playing Monkey Island 2 and we used to occasionally get gaming magazines and my mum discovered that there was a walkthrough for parts of the game in one of them. So we sellotaped up those pages so none of us could access it. And she was the only one who was allowed <laughs> to look in. If we were absolutely stuck, she would get the magazine out and look in. Um, but she like made sure that, that we, we solved the puzzles properly. That's um, amazing. They have really fun memories of, of those. So like my earliest games are like Zool on the Amiga, I guess. But um, I remember the, the noises and colors of the spectrum, at least. That is such a, that is such a beautiful... <laughs> picture you've just painted um so, so how about then as as you got older like did it i'm assuming then it would have been like i mean essentially like sitting around playing a board game like it's like a, a family activity like was there a specific point where you felt like it became just something you were interested in that you were petitioning to get a specific console or computer i think there was a, a funny moment um, and I guess this would have been 1995. Um, we used to watch Bad Influence on the TV, which oh, of was, uh, of course, of course. Um, Violet was on the show a few episodes ago. I haven't caught that one. Holy shit. Um, yeah, it's that's very good. Amazing. Um, I mean, I have just have such fond memories of, of that show. Um, and there was a moment where they covered a game called Command and Conquer for the PC. Mm-hmm. And we had just got a PC at that point. Um, and we, we didn't have much money when we were younger, but um, we we had ended up 
um, I think my grandfather passed away and he'd left us some money and we decided that that would be what we spent the money on. Um, so this was like the most expensive thing we owned by a wide margin. And um, I remember like Encarta 95 and stuff like that. And and my dad played Doom. But the thing that really changed me was there was a game called Command and Conquer that got covered on Bad Influence. And I remember my dad showing it to me and I said, that looks rubbish. Like I basically just played 2D platformers and I was really happy with my life and that was all I was ever going to play. And then he got a copy of it and I started playing. And I think this was where, this is where like I really, like my relationship with games changed, I think. And I don't really know what it was about it. I think I began to see the simulation of systems and worlds instead of um, kind of the more simple, I don't know what the distinction was. Like a lot of games like Zool and Dizzy, they were amazing and they, they mean a lot to me, but Watching Command and Conquer felt like there was this real world thing that was being represented in yeah. code, and I, and I think that was the that was just a change for me. And from then, I became fascinated by the kinds of things that these systems could represent. And I, I remember using Command and Conquer for very weird purposes. Like, I unlocked this cheat mode, and I would sort of stage these weird battles with the AI that had nothing to do with the mission system because I could spawn extra units and things like that. And so you would like act out these weird, uh, almost like machinima style dramas with um they were, it was almost like a micro machine set you know like yeah. driving around tanks and stuff and it, it just felt completely different and i think that was the point at which i began reading about games and more and sort of looking forward to games on my own and trying new things myself instead of just things that i played with my parents kind of and was it but you were staging these big battles like was that kind of um What's differentiation like was that kind of just to to see what happened like just kids experimenting like let's put all these together and throw them at each other and see what happens or were you kind of using it as you said to kind of almost like as a a little theater like i used to do that with my legos i would enact right. big action set pieces with like a lego pirate ship or something but with no, that I... you had the options kind of just let's try this what happens here see if we can make something amazing happen yeah, I think it was a, a bit of both, honestly. And I think the the thing that the thing that that changed in me the most was that ever since then, the thing that I've most been interested in in games is how they make you feel while playing. Like, are you you kind of get into this make believe role in a lot of games? Obviously, when you play Tetris, you don't really. But in a lot of other games, there's some there's some performative element where even when you're playing a narrative game like Half Life, you you have to feel like you are that person in some way. And I think. In Command and Conquer, I that was that was the moment where I got into this feeling of like, like you say, almost like a theater of, you know, how can you make this feel like an exciting moment, or how can you can you enact like a rescue scene in Command and Conquer? You know, I used to get like a unit stranded and then mobilize a force to rescue them, that kind of thing. Um, and I think a lot of games I've played ever since then, most of the time, I've been interested in the feeling of playing the game rather than the challenge of playing the game. Um, not exclusively, but um, for a lot of games, that's been that was sort of the start of that, I think, for me, where I was deeply attracted to, I guess, again, going back to the systems, like what can these systems represent or tell yeah. us or show us? Um, and you, you mentioned like that you, your dad would play games as well and he kind of brought them into the house. So if after you, you said after Command and Conquer, you started getting really into it and reading a lot more about it and stuff, did you, was this a thing that you shared with your dad or was he just relatively just like a casual player? No, no, he uh, he was very into it, um, and he actually sort of led me on to 
various different games experiences, I think. I remember one day he had gone... It was kind of uncharacteristic for him, actually. I don't think he did this ever again. For some reason, and I don't remember why, he ended up going to a LAN party. Um, and at that LAN party, he played Quake. And he came back and just told me about how amazing this thing had been and um, eventually showed me the game. And, you know, Quake was a very special game at the time that it came out, you know. Um, and I think lots of experiences like that had I came through my dad like going back to sort of the Amiga days we would go up to this game shop that was at the end of our high street um, and rummage through old floppy disks and he would find things to bring home or occasionally he would come home with um he would come home with a floppy disk which in retrospect I now realize like all of these games were were pirated or whatever of course yeah yeah like at the time I was just like oh this is another another disk of free games this is cool (laughs) um and I remember, you know, he would bring them home from like friends at work and we would play this, you know, some bizarre game or some of them were like, were just homebrewed games, I think. But I didn't really have that concept in my head back then because games were this very strange. I mean, we, I remember we emailed, we, we wrote, we hand wrote a letter to the developers of Bill's Tomato game because something <laughs> about the game had broke and we got a handwritten letter back from the developer with a fresh floppy disk, which is such a weird interaction to have with a game developer. Um, or at least it would be nowadays, you know, so that's amazing. I guess. I, yeah, I, I'm so fascinated. Like, I'm so um, charmed by this relationship with your dad because a lot of these kind of, I, I think that I genuinely think that it's one like a first for the show because there is often such a, a generational gap. Um, like certainly for me and most of my friends and stuff, all of all of the experiences you described, like someone coming back from a, a LAN party or someone like showing you the good games in a video game shop, like that's all things that. Was, you had with people in school and stuff so to have right. a, this kind of parental figure who, who took on this role is, is amazing like how did that play out I guess in, in school because it's kind of almost not cool to be like oh my dad said this game is really good that's that's kind of like, oh but clearly that's bad then I think um I mean I think my dad so my dad gained a lot of uh, credit, I think, among my friends for various things that he did. Um, one of the one of the first things that he did that I think c- cemented his status forever was uh, for my, I want to say, 10th birthday. Um, I got home one day from school and he had borrowed someone else's uh, PC and he had set up like a two computer um, LAN essentially in our front room. And uh, a couple of my friends had come over and we played sort of 1v1 with rotating players of various computer games, like PC games. But at the time, that was... I mean, this was before I had the internet. And I guess if you had a console, you, there was like two player, but I, I didn't really have any consoles like that. And, and obviously there were games that you could play on a PC that you couldn't play on a console. So yeah. like multiplayer Red Alert was mind blowing. Like I, I, I can remember the feeling of excitement then. And for my friends as well that had come over, this was something none of us had experienced before. Um, it was really wild. Um, That's amazing. And, a LAN party for your 10th birthday. That's yeah, brilliant. it's it's... It's mad thinking about it actually um, now. <laughs> and he got really obsessed with tinkering with machines. You know, he was always uh, sort of scrounging leftover parts from his uh, office where they would throw out PCs. You know, he'd take home a little stick of RAM or something. Um, what did he and do? Eventually, what, was his, years, what was his job? Like, what was his he was <laughs> at the age of 16, he, in the 16 or maybe 18, he started working at an insurance firm um, in town and he worked there his whole life basically. Oh, man. Um, Living the dream. Which was, yeah, like it, it's he. There were so many curious things about his life, really. Um, you know, he 
he sort of taught himself to tinker with these with these PCs and, and build them and stuff. Like he had no real training. He just put stuff together and then sometimes they exploded and sometimes they didn't. Um, and yeah, I don't know. He, he, he was responsible for a lot of things in my life. Uh, sort of sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. Um, and yeah, this land thing continued because um, he eventually built me my own PC. This was many years later, but scrounged together from different parts. Um, and that meant that we had like a two-person PC network uh, in our house because I had this uh, room next to the room with the main PC in. And so occasionally we would play like Doom 2 together, cooperative and things like that. And that was also bizarre. Like that was something that, you know, a lot of people would have had sort of like a N64 with four controllers or something. Yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah. have that, but I did have this sort of really old, weird, patched together PC <laughs> that was... That people could play like networked civilization on it was it was totally bizarre really it's so nice though like uh, because i see that now with um like I'm, I'm slightly older than you and a lot of my friends have got kids and some of them are kind of approaching kind of that sort of age like nine and ten and stuff and you do see this kind of cross-generational play like and i i, I don't know why maybe because i just i like, felt like it was something i missed out and i feel, I feel like that's really such a lovely thing like just to have yeah. this understanding because there's often such misunderstanding like technologically wise, I guess, between generations. It's, it's so nice to have that fostered and clearly it's worked out for you. Like, you know, the, that yeah. interest has paid off. I think I took it for granted at the time how like completely unusual it was really. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so how, like you said that Command and Conquer had changed things and you kind of really dug into um, games from then on, like, did it ever waver? Did you ever kind of go away from games? I had um, a few phases where I played console games more. So that kind of my relationship with games changed. But I think from a very young age, games were kind of my life. And I know that sounds, I mean, it's kind of a weird thing to say because even now today, you know, lots of uh, people whom I love very much uh, on Twitter say things like, make sure you you read and have a life outside of games and consume other kinds of culture. And I always look at that and think, I've completely failed to do this. You know, I'm I'm very poorly read, really. Um, but like when I was eight years old, I was sketching game designs in notebooks and things. Uh, I, I was always fascinated with games. And my interests shifted to other areas, but they never completely wavered, really. I was always finding something to do, something new I hadn't looked at or something that I wanted to play with. Um, and, uh, you know, I kind of went all in on one particular area. You know, I, you know, maybe maybe some regrets in some cases, but um, I I don't know. I enjoyed I enjoyed those periods of kind of moving around. So there was a time when... Um, I guess it was around the Metal Gear Solid era where I played more console games. Um, and there is a different feel, or at least I guess maybe not so much these days. Um, maybe there still is. But at the time, there was a very different feel between playing console games and playing PC games. There was a real difference in the yeah. kinds of games that were on each platform. I mean, uh, you said you'd been brought up on PC. Like, did you ever feel mm -hmm. like you were missing out, like that, yeah, that you didn't get access to these games? I think, um, I think for a while, I didn't... There, was, there were lots of games that I dismissed out of hand and never tried. Um, and so there were lots of genres that I never really got into. And those were genres that were primarily on PC. Um, and so I didn't, um, I didn't think about it as much. And the other thing I guess was, like, kind of like you said, there's the peer aspect. So when I went to secondary school, more people played console games. Um, and I ended up getting dragged into certain, certain series that were kind of only on console. So there was a period where I was infatuated with Final Fantasy games. 
Um, and so you kind of, I kind of just didn't think twice about it at the time because um, those kind of consumed me for a, a period. And then you got the, was that when you sort of got the PlayStation and kind of moved over to that for a longer period? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know when that would have been, but um, I played more of like Metal Gear Solid and Final Fantasy games and lots of my friends had those things as well. So it was, it was something to talk with them about, I guess. There was yeah, more of yeah. a connection there with them. Um, but I don't think I ever fully lost connection with the PC. I don't know. And you, you said that you were sort of sketching game ideas when you were younger. So was that always kind of something in your mind that, you know, this is something I could do? I mean, that that's relatively rare still, even even if you, I mean, I suppose growing up on PC, you have more access to kind of the the other side of it, especially if your dad tinkered with things. But was that something you, you would always thought of? Like, this is something I'd like to do. I always wanted to do it, but I actually had no idea how I ever would. I had no plans. Uh, so my dad tinkered with hardware, but none of like he didn't know anything about programming. Um, and I wouldn't either until I was 18. Um, I had no idea how to program things or anything like that. And so I, I knew I wanted to be involved in games somehow. But after I left primary school, I began to get into writing. And I thought I might be a games journalist for a long, long time. Um, I went to university to study computer science. And even then, my idea was that this degree would be a backup and I would I would go on to be a games journalist and then okay. I would have this degree to fall back on if I didn't, you know, if I didn't make it. Um, I really I love the idea of being a games designer, but I really had no idea how to achieve it. Um, and I know lots so of people that not continue through then you're sort of sketching ideas for games or was that just always something you tinkered with? It kind of did. Um, I think there was a time when. I would like try and sketch out ideas for text adventures, which are kind of easier to, they're closer to like an actual game, if even if you sketch them out, because there's sort of less distance between, you know, a sketch and, and a finished thing. Um, so I always kind of wanted to, but I'd never, I'd never sat down and actually done it. So I didn't really, there were so many things which I didn't know about or I'd never thought about. And I also think that, over time, I became more exposed to like seeing the design in a game. So, you know, it's you can play a game and not really think about why something is there. And then over time, suddenly certain things begin to make sense to you more. Like you, you play a certain game and you start to ask yourself why a certain thing is a certain way. And I hadn't really done any of that when I was younger. Um, okay. That was something that came kind of came later. Um, like they were massive. It's kind of weird. I played Final Fantasy games. I really didn't understand how RPGs worked for a long time. I, you know, because you can kind of blunder through lots of these games without really understanding them. But I just didn't understand fundamental ideas about RPGs, like min-maxing stats, which is you know this this fundamental idea in lots of role-playing games. Yeah. Just didn't occur to me. I just <laughs> did not understand this as a concept for a long time. <laughs> so you just straight down the middle for everything. For everything. I just did like whatever felt good at the time, uh, which kind of goes back to this this thing I was talking earlier about Command and Conquer. Like I would just do whatever felt appropriate or cool or interesting, and I wouldn't really understand that I was trying to optimize things. You know. That's really interesting. Like especially if if you're. Like I wonder how you could how you would miss that kind of thing, especially like for someone like reading a lot of games press and I imagine websites by this point, you know, like and for someone who's thinking I'll I'll be a games journalist, that a lot of that stuff is just naturally taken in by osmosis, I guess. Yeah, uh, it's it's bizarre. I mean, it really is so odd. Like <laughs> the first Final Fantasy I played was Final Fantasy VIII, which um, has this uh, system for. 
you can sort of you have the like quantities of magic so you have like 20 fire spells and then you can attach them to a statistic of yours so if you attach them to your strength it might increase by based on the number of spells that you have um and i i didn't understand this final fantasy 8 was a very hard game for me and it's actually incredibly easy to break that game after like two hours of play i i reinstalled it um recently to play it on um the vita and this the, the way the rpg system works is you can just become unkillable at, at like hour four um but it just didn't occur to me like i just <laughs> i didn't know what any of the numbers were or what they did really i just sort of blustered through um but yeah, I mean, it, it, it was weird. But then most of the games journalism stuff I did was sort of like um, interested in talking about, the, I guess, like the story or the feel or the kinds of things that you did in the game. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. It is funny, though. Like you say, you just think that you just pick these things up. But yeah, I really didn't. <laughs> so when when did that, when did it change then from being wanting to do games journalism and instead kind of, I guess, you, you kind of just took a, a more academic route? Yeah, there was a funny moment... Um, so I, so I started my degree in, ooh, I think it was 2007. I got mixed up with, it was either that or 2006. Um, and I, about two weeks in, there were these optional courses run by a PhD student that you could go to like one hour a week. And he would teach you unusual programming stuff. And I remember I went to the first lecture and I was so overwhelmed by how much this guy knew and all of the cool things he was talking about. And I just thought, I, I want to do a PhD. Like, I really want to do a PhD. And I, I, learning programming was such a weird experience. And it was so exciting and so invigorating. And I just wanted to do more computing, like more and more and more. Yeah. And for a while, I almost went completely into like um, quite theoretical artificial intelligence, like even at the end of my degree. And it was only a couple of chance decisions that ended up with me doing games research. Um, so I almost left games behind forever. Um, but I'm very, very thankful that I didn't. Um, because building Angelina was also kind of the thing that allowed me to learn how to make games. Um, because in order to get Angelina to make games, I had to first learn how to use a particular engine or how to make a particular genre of game. And so we kind of learned Your together. AI mentor. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> we, we, we basically learned alongside each other. Or I had to teach myself so that I could teach it. And it's um, so I, I'm hugely grateful. There were some extremely unlikely or, or sort of chance occurrences where I just decided to do one thing instead of the other. Um, and... Yeah, very, very, feeling very fortunate that I've ended up here. Um, and why AI? Like, is that just because it's kind of a really interesting fringe subject? Is it any relation to sort of games? And, you know, you have that, that's kind of, as you said earlier, that's something that people who play games have at least a, a certain understanding and expectation of. Yeah, it's funny. I, so I, I did, when I came to, to start my degree, I didn't really know much about computing, funnily enough, even though I'd chosen it. But one thing I knew I was interested in was artificial intelligence. And part of the reason was games. Um, and it was mostly a fascination and like somewhat confusion of, for years I played against AI and I tried to envisage, without knowing how programming works, tried to envisage how it was possible to write an AI. And one of the things in particular, and it's so funny to say this now, but one of the things that really confused me was um, when I was playing Command and Conquer at like age 10 or whatever, was like, how can you write an AI that pretends not to know where the player is or pretends not to know everything about the player? Like, I was really confused. I was imagining the computer playing That's against me. really interesting. <laughs> I was like, it knows everything about me. How, how is it restraining itself? Like, how do you make it? 
um, pretend to do this. Um, and I was just I was just fascinated with making computers do things in general. And I think this linked all of these things kind of linked together because I ended up fascinated with procedural generation. That's how I've ended up with Angelina and and Procjam and all of these other things. Fascinated with the idea that that games can build or software can build things. And I think this comes from things like seeing systems represent the real world, like in Command and Conquer, and then seeing AI work inside those systems. And so it kind of it had to understand, or at least I thought it had to understand, like what a gun is and what a platoon is or what a what high ground is. And trying to understand that and then seeing how these things could combine where if AI understood all of these things, maybe it could make a dramatic war scene or maybe it could make... Um, a more interesting map to build a civilization on or something. And all of these things built together to basically make me fascinated in making computers more intelligent, I guess, when I got to university. Um, but like I say, it was kind of it was kind of blind luck that I stumbled back into that route. I almost lost it forever. Oh, man, there's so many interesting questions. Um, I'm going to take <laughs> a brief aside, though, and do some uh, relatively quick-fire questions. Sure. Um, okay, so... Oh man, it's been such a long time. I don't know if I remember them all. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course I do. Uh, so, Mike, um, is there a game that's kind of um, consumed your life to the point where you've had to kind of uninstall it from your system and forget about it? Um, probably Dota 2 is the best one for that. Uh, I started playing that in 2013, and uh, I've just clicked on Steam to see, and I've logged 4,300 hours in that wow. game. And I have mixed feelings about it. I have some regrets, but um, I basically no longer play that game. And I don't regret it consuming my life totally, but um, it was a major like cognitive drain um, in so many ways. I'm so surprised uh, so, yeah. by that, because that's obviously that's all multiplayer. Right, exactly, um, and and it, it's basically impossible to play just on the feeling or emotions of it. You yeah, basically exactly. have to like it's about and and this was it was kind of like um, at first I thought this game is not for me. I can't play this game, but actually I relished it for the first time, and I, I learned so much about how games work and how game design works just by playing that game because every part of that game is perfectly interlocking with all the others, and um, and when a patch comes, it changes it in all of these interesting ways, but maintains that interlocking feeling and. I just became, it was, it was weird. And, and it was weird. I'd, I'd never cared about like my performance in a game before. Like I, I, I improved myself playing that game. I, I watched myself get better and I learned how to make myself better for the, like, the first time in my whole gaming career, probably. Um, it was a very singular, like I've never played a game like that before and I may never again. Um, <laughs> it was, it was really interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely, I had to say goodbye to it. Um, well, on that sort of line, I guess, um, if you had to play a game with, with death for your own mortal soul, what game are you best at? <laughs> um, what am I best at? Probably, I've never been super good at any game. And the thing with Dota is that like, it matchmakes you so you always feel average at it, no matter how good you are. Okay. But I was pretty good at Invisible Ink. You know? I really got into that game um, more than any other game. And... I I kind of learned a lot about it and I felt like I knew it inside out by the time I put it down. I reckon I could do a pretty good a pretty good job. Pull one over on him. And it's sort of a stealthy game. I think you know you sneak around him and and outwit him. I think that would that would definitely work. Not not traditionally multiplayer, but uh... No, that's fine. You can figure it out. It's all powerful, I assume. Um 
Are you, I mean, uh, so we've kind of just answered this, but like, are you a particularly competitive uh, games player? Have you ever been locked in a high score battle with anyone? Um, I, so I did get pretty into Dota, like I mentioned, um, and there's a lot of self-improvement, but you're never against one particular person. But um, I did get quite into N++'s um, scores. A few of my friends... It's, it doesn't like it doesn't remind you that someone's beaten your score on a particular level, but you can't help but look at it when you log in yep. before you play a new level, and um, especially that first world, like we were shaving off hundreds of a second against each other, and it's really it's incredibly stupid and trivial, um, but it is a lot of fun, and uh, I imagine if I when I boot up M plus plus next, it, it, like that will never stop for the rest of time. I imagine. I was I, I felt quite lucky because I am I'm very much someone who's who's prone to to high score battles and stuff but i came to n plus plus late enough that everybody already had massive scores so it's like oh i'm not gonna do that and it was fine so I, I could just play it for the enjoyment of it and not be kind of consumed with restarting to get the perfect run yeah yeah no that sounds like a better way to play it um do you have uh, a chicken soup game a game that you kind of play for for comfort um it's that's interesting because so as an academic, one of the things I have to do is travel to events. And I, re- uh, so most people list this as a perk of the job when they tell other people about being a researcher. But the problem is I hate travel and I'm really bad at traveling. And so I have desert golfing on my phone. And that is a game I basically only play when I'm on a train or an airport lounge or like um, somewhere miserable. And it's kind of transports me away a bit and i rely on it a lot and it's funny i actually associate the sight of the game now with feelings of travel and being displaced um like just seeing a screenshot of it makes me feel like that um but there's something about the endlessness of it and the repetition of it that is kind of comforting um when you are kind of you're in these places which are repetitive and endless like a train or you know an airport gate that's lovely it's it's a little bleak like it is it is being your travel companion is like oh this endless kind of sparse <laughs> game but still that's, that's quite poetic i like it um considering the kind of like what you were talking earlier about like enjoying the the feel of games they're able to evoke quite a lot of emotions now but one of the rarest is still um laughter so uh, mike what games have really made you laugh <laughs> uh, i think most games that make me laugh uh make me laugh unintentionally which I, I think is quite common because comedy is really hard to do, right? Um, and for that, they're probably multiplayer games. And I think the one that makes me laugh most at the moment is Player Unknown's Battlegrounds. Um, so this is another game which is played quite competitively. Um, but unlike Dota, it doesn't have to be played competitively. And so I have a very casual relationship with this game. Um, and so me and, and, and three friends normally play it. And inevitably something stupid will happen like someone will drive a bike off a cliff while talking about how safe they're you know they'll be bragging about how good a driver they are and then they'll just upend the car immediately and everyone will get shot to death um and it's it's so lightweight and relaxing um i think that's what makes it funny when something goes wrong like normally it'd be frustrating in a multiplayer game but uh the game has a very light feel to it and so yeah pretty much any way we die in that game is funny (laughs) I st- I've still not played it. I don't have a good enough <laughs> PC. They just did. There's a um, there's a game on the PS4 called Fortnite. Do you know Fortnite? Ah, yeah. And they've just in- essentially just introduced kind of player known battleground mode. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, and that's super fun, but it's it's much more basic, I think, than the actual uh, player unknown. 
I heard that's pretty cool because you can kind of build stuff in that world as well, yeah, right? Yeah, you can build like totally different walls angles. around yourself and build ramps up mountains and stuff to get around. Yeah. So it's quite fun. It's got like a little Minecrafty element to it where you gather wood to build stuff. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Yeah, it's good fun. It's good fun. Um, it's an intentional plug for Fortnite. It's free <laughs> as well. It's free on the PS4. That was that was the selling point to me. Um, okay, so so like I'm I'm curious, like because you you said there was all these kind of micro decisions that kind of led you towards AI, but aside from Command and Conquer, like from a, a gaming standpoint, point, I suppose, are there kind of standard games to you in terms of I guess AI, since that's what your main interest seems to be with that kind of like that kind of uh further consolidated you'd made the right decision to kind of research this area um so you kind of mean like before before i left university kind of yeah that was a really long-winded question i apologize yeah no no (laughs) (laughs) but you know i mean like you know the the command and conquer kind of instilled this idea Mm -hmm. in, in you but are there games along the way that have kind of consolidated this or changed this in any way so there's there's a very common answer which I think lots of people give, which is uh, Metal Gear Solid is uh, like a classic one where you would have the enemy would react to things that you wouldn't expect an enemy to react to, and in some ways these are not things that some people wouldn't call them AI, but seeing um, an AI respond to your footprints in the snow was a very exhilarating thing to witness uh, when I first played the demo of the game um, with my friend at his house uh, and. Those were, again, the kinds of things that that make your mind like go searching suddenly in terms of possibilities. Like the possibility space suddenly expands by a factor of a million. All of these things that you just didn't think were possible. Um, there's this thing where, like, there's there's evidence where if people if people don't know words in particular languages, they struggle to form the concepts in their minds. And um, there's it felt that there was a similar thing with this where the more i saw like an opportunity in a game like someone would demonstrate a single feature and then suddenly you would realize all of these other things because this whole new set of concepts had kind of unlocked themselves and i think metal gear solid was a really good example um, of something there um as i grew older i guess um there's a game called facade which i don't know how well known it is do you know about facade i do but only through doing this show actually right it's like an ai date essentially yeah it's it's a very strange setup for a game you, you basically go over to your friend's house um for dinner and then ruin their marriage um, or, or or save it i guess um but um that was that was one of the first times i saw a scientific paper about a video game that i could play and um that was obviously a really big turning point for me because I didn't really understand that these things I kind of tangentially knew that people went to university to study game development but I didn't know that this kind of thing existed where you where you could like write a serious piece about a game and that you had made and people would be interested in it and want to hear about it um, and that was obviously very direct. I mean, that's literally a research game. It's not really like a game that you saw a review of in PC Gamer and then went out and bought. But um, that was that was a really big deal for me because there was so much going on in the game and I didn't understand any of it. And I kind of, I mean, I, I see this, it's, it's very common in AI today, actually. But but when you don't understand an AI system, your mind just, just starts um, guessing at what might be possible or what might be, what might be going on behind the scenes. Um, and that was another moment where, yeah, just this whole other realm of possibilities was just suddenly unlocked. And, and I was excited about where it might go. 
Um, but at that point, I was still planning on being a games journalist. So I was just interested in writing about it. I pitched a, I pitched a feature to PC Gamer when I was like 17, I think, based around Facade. There's a lot of good, uh, good features around Facade at the time. And I've discovered <laughs> recently there are some absolutely amazing Let's Plays of people really <laughs> abusing the, the AI in various ways. It's, it's, an, it's an amazing kind of toy, I think, for that kind of like, for the, for the notion, I suppose, of like a procedurally generated story. And like yeah. the, the unexpected turns that can take, yeah, um, uh, yeah, it's 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 amazing. Like and and so, th- do you think, like, a, a, as you sort of continued on through university and stuff, did you think that you were going to do what you've ended up doing? If you know what I mean, like, like because there's obviously a lot of room for AI designers with, within games. Like, was that not something you thought you you would do, or, or maybe that is something you still think you're going to do? Um, it's funny uh, when so so the degree I was on was was computer science and uh, I went to a university which had zero games in it like there was there was zero mention of games and I don't just mean like on the syllabus this was the weird thing I was in uh, a class of like 110 computer science students and for some reason gamers were were a minority of people in there I expected this, this is a common thing be, on the show and I don't understand I, it loads of no, people who did computer science degrees and there was just no one who played games really and and I was expecting to be sort of overwhelmed by them um, and so it made it really hard to learn about how games are made or I mean I, I should you know I probably could have done I didn't really know where to start or where to look it was funny it was very frustrating at the time um, but I, I think as a result of that, I just kind of came to the conclusion that I would never really be able to work in the industry because I wouldn't have the right skills. And um, and I also got fascinated by, there's a lot of um, romanticism about the early days of computer science or like some of the grand challenges. And yeah. I think I got very drawn into that as well. So for a while, I was sort of content with the idea that I might drift into research. Um, and it I, and it wouldn't necessarily be related to games. Like I was I was content with that. Um, and the idea of making games sort of slowly faded and became a more distant like opportunity. And then it just suddenly surged back with Angelina, and it was you know like getting to start all over again. Um, it was very it was a very special moment. Um, but I, I guess I guess even then actually, even when I wanted to go into theoretical computer science, one of the things I pitched to the person who was going to be my supervisor but ended up not being. Um, was getting an AI to watch what a, a human was doing in a simulation and then infer what they were going to do next. Um, so, you know, figure out that, oh, this, this person's trying to pour a cup of tea. So the next thing they're going to do, you know, just by watching what they were doing. Um, and the reason I wanted to do that basically was to apply it to games. So even, even when I was hoping to go into theoretical computer science, I was still... Um, I still had, like, part of my mind on applications to games at some point. Um, but I never thought I'd cut it in the industry. And like speaking of the the, the games then that that you like kind of influenced you and kind of first introduced these ideas into your head, like did you? I'm assuming you would have gone back, like you know, because you you know the, the, you were saying like why in Command and Conquer don't they all just attack you? They know everything. Like, <laughs> would you retrospectively go back into this and go, oh my god, that's like was that su- surprising how basic maybe some of it was? Yeah, I, I think I think it was, and but also it kind of delighted me. One of the things that really delighted me was discovering how much um, bespoke code had been written for many of these games. So you know, I guess we would call them, mm, I guess like expert systems almost, or um, people would sit down and basically put their knowledge into their their knowledge of how a game should be played, and they would encode it into the the program directly. So the program 
wouldn't have as much freedom, but it would have all of this bonus knowledge that, that someone had given it. And the reason I, I liked that idea was because the developers of the game were kind of locking in themselves into the software and the way that the game played itself forever was based on how they believed the game should be played, which is... Um, That's quite nice. Yeah, it, 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 I've always liked that. I, I've always loved that about old games as a result um, because they, they're, you know, they're not being changed or patched or updated anymore. So you're kind of locking in whatever the developers thought about their game and they have to express it and put it down in code. And, and, and you know, it can't just be something that they talk about. It's actually there forever and you yeah. can look at it, poke at it. Um, but the other thing is that, that when, when I became a researcher and I ended up in areas that are kind of esoteric like there aren't many people working in the areas that i'm in and i think it's the same for game ai in general is that it feels like we've done a lot in game ai but actually there's so much left to do and that is really exciting so coming back and finding out that i was wrong about like command and conquer's ai was sort of exciting because then you just start thinking about all of the things there is left to do and when you're learning about the early days of computing, it's easy to get jealous of those people because they there was so many unanswered questions. Um, and I'm actually lucky that I've ended up in a field where that's still the case. There's still so many unanswered questions, so many things that no one's even tried before. Like you could go and, and pick one of these questions and do the, the crappiest thing you could imagine, but it'll still be the first time anyone's tried <laughs> to do this thing. And that's valuable. And, and that's, that's really exciting. It, it's an incredible, it makes it incredibly exciting to do any kind of work. Oh man, it, it, it is it is um, um, infectious your enthusiasm, Mike. It really is. Um, like on a kind of similar note, though, like have there been games that you've kind of looked at the AI systems and been just completely blown away by how not necessarily complex, but but how clever it is? Like as an example of something. Um, I think there's uh, there's a lot of cases where I've really appreciated the. Um, extents to which people have people have gone like black and white always fascinates me in how they put things which I think if you proposed it today people would laugh at the idea of a big studio doing something like that in their game you know like a complex thing like machine learning or um, I met a guy who worked on the creature series and he told me about the incredible detail they went to with their neural networks I didn't even know the game had that in um, I think it came out when I was a, a little bit too young to like understand a lot of it but there's some there's some games like yeah creatures in black and white that have ridiculous extents to to try and add new things to the game and try out new things um, and I think procedural generation which I kind of I, th I think it's fair to say is like an aspect of AI even though we don't traditionally think of it like that um, there are games where I'm really fascinated by I'm fascinated in general by the balance of um, a d the designer encoding themselves into a game and uh, giving the system freedom so. Um, in adversarial AIs, like Command and Conquer's AI to try and beat the player, most of that is like encoding. You're telling them how to play the game. You can't really give it freedom because it's too it's too vague. But when yeah. you look at procedural generators, it's a much more interesting case. So something like Spelunky is is very towards the um, human designer side of the spectrum. So I really I think Spelunky's procedural generator is incredible. But the thing that's really incredible about it is how Derek Yu understood how to keep his own individuality in the generator and how to keep his own level design instincts. Um, whereas then you look at something on the other end, like Minecraft maybe, um, where there's a lot more freedom in the generator and there's a lot more unpredictability. And um, 
I'm always fascinated in that kind of trade-off, uh, like where a designer decides to draw the line, where they stop putting themselves in and they let the computer run free. Because um, both ends are both ends of the spectrum are valid, and it just depends on like how someone feels comfortable about it. Um, so I, I've really been interested in that recently. And I, I, I said fascinating. This I've never really considered this idea of. Uh a programmer kind of placing themselves within the game or an element of themselves um and you seem to be quite enamored by this idea which is super interesting because you've developed angelina which is kind of the opposite of that in terms of like if you're both learning at the same time then you're kind of putting in your ideas for it to make its own games yeah so you're yeah you're kind of removing yourself a little bit from the equation but obviously you can't remove yourself from the equation because you are intrinsically part of it that's what's that that's one of the most fascinating things about working on angelina is every every new version i tell people that i've i've tried to remove parts of me from the process so angelina is more independent and in general that's true and and i i usually have removed some bit of me from from what was going on but at the same time when i look back i realize how much of me is sort of inextricable so this um, this latest version of Angelina, I've really pushed the idea that Angelina will, will slow down and take its time to make a game and will talk with people more. And I realized that that is exactly what I've started to do with my own <laughs> game development. Like I stopped entering game jams um, about a year and a half ago so I could focus on this game I'm making, Rogue Process, and I'm also having to talk to more people about it as well. And I've realized that, yeah, just my whole my whole concept of, of what a game developer is has basically been reflected in Angelina over the years. Like initially it was this abstract rules only, no connection with the outside world thing. Then it entered game jams. Now it's like working <laughs> on its own big projects. And it's like, you know, no matter how much I remove myself, I'm I'm right in there. And I and I get maybe that is maybe you're right. Like maybe that's why I'm so fascinated in the, how this works in other games or, or other kinds of software. Because I think it's very easy, and, and especially with AI, when you see people talk about AI today in the news, they yeah. talk about it like it's this thing that just came into being. You know, it's this neutral thing that has never been touched by the outside world. But actually, like the second you write the first line of code of an AI, you just it's just infected with you from the start. And um, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's actually quite cool, and we can look at it and understand it and think about it and talk about it. Um, but I, I'm fascinated by it. I think it's it's interesting. It, it really is like. I was just as you were chatting, then I was like, "Oh, I should, I should get Angelina on to do uh, <laughs> do their own episode of Checkpoints." But clearly, we've kind of already done that because you're here. Um, I've got so many questions. Like, there's so many things to think about. So, have you ever done uh, as an experiment? Have you ever kind of um, set yourself like a, a kind of personal 24-hour game jam or something, and th thought, "Right, I'm going to design." this kind of game and then set Angelina to design the same, the same type of game and then see what you both independently create. So I haven't done that yet, but I have thought about it a lot. And the, the new version of Angelina is different from all the others because um, the it uses a, a language to describe games, which means that you can actually, for the first time, you can look at the game that it's designed in like plain English and edit, well, not plain English, but more or less plain English. And you can edit stuff and you could almost make your own game in that language, kind of like puzzle script, um, which okay. is like a, yeah. And, and so I actually think that maybe if once this version gets a bit further along and, and hopefully I can get it to a really good position, but actually we could get people 
writing games in the same language Angelina does. And maybe even like we were talking about at the start, maybe Angelina could give advice or play the games and give feedback. Um, and I would love to um, do that that thing that you just said where me and Angelina both try and make something at the same time. Um, and actually Chris Donlan, who you had on the show recently, yeah. I made this, uh, I, I, I've known him for a few years now and I got talking to him around the time when his daughter was born. Um, and I, I did joke with him that we would get uh, his daughter and Angelina to have a, a game development showdown age 10 because seeing the development of human beings compared, like the development timescale of a human being compared to an AI is hilarious and uh Chris's daughter will will kick Angelina's ass, but uh, it's 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 fun. I think it's fun to have this shared language, which is what I've been trying to work towards with Angelina now, is to um, allow people to actually, yeah, maybe maybe make their own games, or maybe hack Angelina's games, or maybe Angelina can finish a game that you've started. Maybe maybe you have like a rough idea and you design like half of the game, but you want to have the levels designed by Angelina, or you want it to balance the game so it's fun. I don't know. Um, that's so interesting it's like there's so many uses for it. like how at the moment like how is it you were saying like you've the latest version it slows down and talks to people like what what does that entail like how does it talk to people um so one of the things we used to try and do was have it tweet um and before it would tweet about really weird stuff um so i had this big archive of of images that it didn't know anything about so it would tweet and ask people for um help like tagging them and understanding what they are um and that was that was culturally interesting because people at first thought it was funny to lie to angelina um and then i told everyone that angelina was noting down every answer and also who said it and that later on it might be able to determine who was lying to it and then all of those people stopped lying they they decided that it wasn't <laughs> funny anymore um it almost like they felt bad you know that the ai might remember in the future um so i want to do more more sort of twitter stuff where it'll post screenshots of what it's doing um but uh this is well, this is something I haven't really talked about in public yet, actually, but uh, why why don't we do it now? Um, oh, wow, exciting. So one of the things I'm planning on doing is having Angelina stream live on Twitch at Making Games. Um, and I've made sure that the, the for the first time Angelina is visual, you can watch it test levels, for instance, or you can watch it come up with rule sets. Um, and it can read Twitch chat, so you can ask it simple things, very simple things. Um, and it can tell you like what it's working on or what a particular rule might mean or something like that. Um, and uh, all of this has been... So before, Angelina would make a game in like four hours, and it would be completely offline during that time, and then it would spit out the game. Okay. But now I want people to, to see it make the game, because I think people have more faith in it and maybe more appreciation for the hard work that it does, because there's less mystique around it now. You can see what it's doing. Like, we're, we're trying to lay everything bare um, and not try and... You know, I'm not trying to pull the wool over your eyes or anything. This is actually what Angelina does. And it's probably less impressive than you thought. But maybe now that you can see it 100% for sure, maybe that means that what is there is more valuable. Um, and so I haven't done this yet. Like, we, I, I've done some tests, um, but I haven't gone, like, properly live. I don't know when it will be, but um, before the end of the year. Oh, so um, exciting. But yeah, I'm hoping that it will be live on Twitch streaming game development, which would be really <laughs> exciting as long as Twitch don't ban us. But uh, hopefully it's they won't. A whole new uh, subgenre of streamers. Like, mm. uh, are there other are there other Angelinas? Like, are other people working on these same sort of um, projects, these same sort of ideas? 
Um, there are lots of people in computational creativity working on software that works in other domains. So um, my supervisor has a piece of software called The Painting Fool, which does art. And um, there's a lot of uh, systems that do music. There's even one that makes soup recipes. Um, but in games, there's there's fewer, but there's definitely some. Um, so Ahmed Khalifa is working in uh, NYU at the moment, and he's doing some stuff on automated game design. Um, Gabriela Barros, also at uh, NYU, is doing some cool stuff with um, game design for certain genres. So she's looked at um, like adventure games. Actually, uh, was one of, like Where in the World Is Carmen Sandiego? She's kind of like auto-generated those using Wikipedia, which is great. Oh yes, uh, I saw that. That was amazing. Yeah, so there's there's some projects here or there that do this kind of thing, and and the community is growing, and it's really fun and exciting. And actually, next month I'm going to um, a, a meetup of various researchers. We're going to spend a week in a converted castle um, talking about using AI for game design. Um, and so we're we're really interested in this now, and we're kind of come at it from all angles, like using AI to design games better, or using AI to design games on their own, like Angelino does. Um, and I think people are getting more into it, and we're getting more into the idea that even though creativity is confusing and complex and mysterious, um, that doesn't mean that AI can't poke at the edges of it and, and reveal cool things about our own creativity. Um, so yeah, there's definitely more people, more people coming. Um, That's so interesting. Like, I, I guess you've kind of changed my whole perspective on AI over the course of this, this chat <laughs> oh. because it, it, you've made it more of a, a reflection of the person that makes it like and i'm assuming that's always going to be true i think it is like do you and think, I think it's possible to make a completely alien autonomous AI? it's not really is it because you're always going to have a hand in it no I, I don't think it is and and i think sometimes we don't appreciate that enough and and there are some people who and it's not because they're necessarily bad people you know but there are some people who want it to be true they want it to be true that the ai is completely neutral but actually it reflects anything it can reflect the company that that came up with it it can reflect the country that it was developed in it can it it soaks up everything around it um and oh, we can't made it help terrifying it. again uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know it can be good or bad but i think being aware of it is the important thing because once yeah. you're aware of it then you can fix it or you know i've had to throw away projects i had a project called a rogue dream and um, it designed games based on Google autocomplete results. So um, if, you, if, the, if the player was going to be a cat, then the enemies would be water. Because if you type into Google, why do cats hate? It would say, why do cats hate water as an autocomplete? So the game would be like, oh, lots of people have written this. So they have observed the fact that cats hate water. So therefore, water can be the enemy. And this was fine unless you type in like... English people or women or um, oh Christians and then suddenly <laughs> the entire thing and, and you know and then that's reflecting culture very clearly then then it's really <laughs> obvious what it's reflecting and so I, I just basically shut that project down <laughs> pretty much um, but you know so it can be subtle or it can be obvious but as long as we're uh, as long as we think about it then it's not a problem um, and it can be fun uh, and I think there are some people who are maybe a bit um, uncomfortable about the idea that even in computational creativity, you know, it's really important. We, we always want our software to be independent. That's, the, that's really important for us. And I think as a result, some people are uncomfortable that their software reflects them because it might mean that it's less independent or whatever. But I don't see it that way. I think it's, I think it's fine. And I think it's, it's interesting. And I don't want to be, like, I don't want to make like a really crude analogy, but some people have drawn analogies between like parents and children or teachers and students. Like in all of these cases, the students, the children, they exhibit 
traits of the environment they grew up in or they learn it's natural um and it doesn't mean they're not independent or creative or special um it just tells us something about them and i think that's cool that is super cool um just to talk briefly before we finish up about kind of your own kind of process as a game designer so you said you'd learn by making angelina and you're now Mm. working on your own game like how does that feel odd not odds, but like I feel like that's because you've been spent so long kind of making uh, a thing to make games. Like, is putting yourself back into it a, kind of a, an odd experience? It definitely is. Um, I think one of the one of the weirdest things is having to talk about something that only I have done. Um, that's that's been odd, uh, but also just. You know, it's funny, I, I joined, I started as a researcher because I, I love research and I desperately wanted to do it, but um, I, I am at a bit, <laughs> God, this is going down, this is probably going down some some weird routes for the podcast, but I'm at a weird kind of crossroads um, now where if I want to continue with my career in academia, I would have to become a lecturer, which will put lots of strain on my time and I'll have to write lots of grants, things like that. Um, and the other option is, I could leave it all behind and I could join the games industry. Um, and it's really, it's, it's very strange right now to be working on this game that I love. Like I love working on rogue process so much and it's so fun and rewarding. And at the same time, I love research. And unfortunately, both of those jobs kind of implicitly want you to spend a hundred percent of your time yeah. on them. You know, I, I used to spend my weekends doing research work because it's just better for your career. Like academics, you know, are kind of encouraged to overwork. Um, and if you if you if you're someone who's making a game in your spare time, that's exactly the same situation. And so, I'm in this really weird position right now where my life feels split in two, and there's a lot of tension in it. Um, but making a game has been amazing to reflect on, like the past of Angelina and me, and some of the things we talked about today, like how how my thoughts about games have changed over time. So, and how so that... what's the what's the game? So um, Rogue Process is a 2D action platformer, um, but it's about hacking. It's about hacking things. And most hacking games are about uh, clicking buttons and drawing lines between things and stuff like that. Um, but Rogue Process, in Rogue Process, to hack something, you just type a word and then you press enter. So when you go into hacking mode, everything has words next to it. So the camera will have a word like cyber node next to it. And okay. Um, there'll be a crane holding a barrel and that'll have another word next to it. And if you type that word and press enter, the camera will turn off or the crane will drop the barrel it's holding. Um, or maybe you run a program that you have on installed on your deck. And so um, instead of it being a hacking game about um, sort of quiet sitting in a bedroom somewhere connecting to servers instead you're jumping through skyscrapers and um you hear the sounds of a mechanical keyboard tapping out a random piece of jargon and then you hit a button and things explode or things electrocute um and so it's about kind of the hollywood feel of being a hacker um mixed in with a lot of procedural generation obviously because that's my life that's what you do that sounds (laughs) super fun it's um it's funny. It, it, it's, it, I think it's a fun game. I think it's really, really fun. Um, it probably wasn't the best choice of game to design for my first major game because it's really all you can do in the game is move, jump and type. Like everything is done through typing and it makes the game really unique and feel very different. But it's been a nightmare to design. Like it's so hard as like someone starting out in game design to think about all of these problems and 
you can't use any of the stock solutions because they don't apply to your game. Yeah. Um, but that's also been a fun discovery kind of process. And that, that does sound exactly like a lot of the games that have kind of inspired you in the sense that it's about playing with the game itself, you know? Like it's, it's pushing at the boundaries of what, what can I do? What weird things can I try here that'll make something unusual or interesting or amazing happen? Yeah, that's absolutely what I'm going for. And and actually, I, I was worried for a while that I wouldn't be a very good game designer in the terms of designing a challenging game because I'm not very good at doing challenging things in games. I used to think that in order to be a good game designer, you had to be really good at the things you were designing. And I've learned that that's not actually the case. And many developers are terrible at their own games. Um, but uh, I kind of decided to go all in on the thing which... I feel strongly about which is like how does this game make you feel and most of the things in rogue process are just there to make you feel stylish or cool or powerful um and i guess there's also something in there where there's a lot of ai in the game and it's explicitly in the game's fiction as well so most of the ai is coordinated by these central networks which are both exist in the game world as security networks um but they're also like ai that's written in the code of the game as well um, and so there's been lots of um, there's been lots of like weird intersections between Angelina and Rogue Process, where you're like writing software that can design security systems, and it's sort of both fictional and non-fictional at the same time, which is very strange. Very meta. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh man, that's so exciting. Um, I feel like we've covered all sorts of good stuff here, uh, Michael. Is, if there's anything that kind of hasn't come up that you wanted to mention, though, please uh, take this opportunity now. Uh, when's this, do you know when this episode will go up, by any chance? It'll be, what's the date today? 24th. It'll be November, the first week of November. So So um, if, this, uh, if this episode comes out November towards the, the start of... Okay, now that's actually perfect. Um, so... Assuming this episode comes out sometime uh, in early November, um, you should definitely go onto Twitter and check out the ProcJam hashtag, P-R-O-C-J-A-M, because there's loads of people uh, making cool things which have to do with everything we've been talking about today, like computers doing new things or weird things or building wild stuff. Yeah, so um, this is a jam that you you set up yourself? Yeah, um, it was... It, it, I don't know. It was it was designed to bring together different communities um, and also to to give a place where like experts could could do weird and new things and also newcomers could come and learn their first steps. Like I wanted a community where both of those things were possible and everyone who's joined Proc Jam is so friendly and nice and they all want to like make the place better and cooler and friendlier and um, I, I don't know. The, the community is amazing and every year they produce wonderful things. So around the time that this episode comes out, if you hop onto that hashtag, you'll probably see amazing stuff happening um, and I, I'm looking forward to it. And is that like a, just on the internet kind of game jam that happens over a couple of days, I'm assuming? Um, yeah, it's actually, we, we tweak the rules of a normal game jam to make it more relaxing. So it actually takes place over nine days and people can like enter late or start early. Some people just work weekends. Um, and so it's a very slow burn and people post all kinds of different things through the week. But yeah, it's online only. So everyone can join in from all around the world. Oh man, that's, that's exciting. Like, <laughs> I guess I, I'm just like all, I'm fishing for like just mad stories of things getting out of hand and like having to pull the power from the wall or something but i guess that doesn't really exist does it it's, it's much more nuanced than that no I, I think 
more often more often i need to like pull the power from whatever's like displaying the latest things that humans have done uh, <laughs> you know and and that's one of the that, like program program is probably the thing i feel most positive about having done because every time i see someone talk about it or i see someone join it or discover it for the first time like everyone seems to have this unspoken understanding of how to be welcoming and positive and nice and it has just i've i've just not seen a community like it it's i feel so uh lucky to know many of these people um and i think that's yeah it feels it feels good to do something like that in a year like this like to find to, to create a place where people can come and do and like you know procedural generation isn't going to save the world but um it's a way for people to learn something new and, and express themselves and have fun and meet new people and it, it's just great to see it kind of roll along and grow uh maybe it will save the world maybe it will save the world i've actually thought about like I've actually thought about like what, what's the most extreme thing generative software could do. Um, there's some cool stuff it could do, I think. You know, help people protest or help protect people, maybe. That's exciting. Now that that's that's the start <laughs> of, an, of a movie right there, and it could go either way. It could become self-aware, and that's that's the big villain. It could be very exciting. Um, actually, I've got one more quick question for you. Um, yeah. Why is uh, your AI named Angelina? <laughs> Uh, it's funny. I okay. So originally it was gonna be named. Um, it had actually it had a billion names, but in the end I decided I wanted an acronym that started and ended with the same letter, so I could do a stupid. This is it's it's really it's like the worst explanation ever. It, it stands for a novel game evolving lab rat. I've named Angelina because when I was an undergrad I really liked recursive acronyms, um, and now I regret it intensely. <laughs> I really like that. I really like that. That's very kind of you to say. Um, only, bit, well, for, for many reasons. The fact that it's a proper smart-ass kind of acronym, <laughs> recursive no. acronym, is uh, that's right up my alley. Oh. And it reminds me of Daryl, the, the 80s film about the kid, the <laughs> data analyzing ro robot youth life form, which is always nice to, there's always fond, warm memories. Um, that was that was amazing. Thanks, Mike. Was that was that fun? Was that okay for you? That was great. Thank you so much. I got to talk about all kinds of stuff I never thought I'd talk about to someone. So thank you so much. Angelina, Angelina, please bring down your concertina and play a welcome for me, cause I'll be coming home from sea. I say, Angelina, Angelina, please bring down your concertina and play a welcome for me, cause I'll be coming home from sea. Yes, it's so long since I've been home, seems like there's no place to roam. Well, I've sailed around the horn, I've been from San Jose up to Baffin Bay, and I've rode out many a storm. Yes, sir, Angelina, Angelina. Please bring down your concertina and play a welcome for me, cause I'll be coming home from sea. Angelina, Angelina, please bring down your concertina and play a welcome for me, cause I'll be coming home from sea. Well, I've heard the body tunes, I've been in honky-tonk saloons, I took my liquor by the vat. I will have stayed on call for a rousing ball home was where I hung my hat. 